May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Maybe seated. Yes, I forgot to put on the microphone. So real quickly, I was trying to get out there. Thank you, Shane, for helping me out with that. You go away for a couple of weeks and you come back and have to be trained all over again, I guess. That's what it is. I wonder how many times we will have said in the year 2020 that this year has been a disaster. I mean, everything, everything has been impacted. Every area of our lives, everything that we did and do and plan to do, the celebrations of birthdays and anniversaries. I remember Abby and I eating carry-out food from Lager and Vine and little plastic tins on our anniversary. Um, no St. Patrick's Day parade. You know, None of the things that we're used to. Even baseball didn't begin until almost August and then only a 60-game season. All of our traditions have been delayed or curtailed or just outright canceled. And I'm not here this morning to complain about any of that. Um, I think that most of our leaders have done what they could, the very best they could do to make decisions for other people and to, to try to weigh the balances of public interest and public health. And I think it's happening in the church as well. And still there are a thousand Americans dying every day from this disease, and 40 of those are Ohioans. And so it's a real issue and I don't mean to downplay the seriousness of it or anything like that or to bemoan, you know, the um, my lost civil liberties or anything like that. I'm just here to say I'm voicing the frustration that everybody else feels, that our world has been just, you know, turned upside down and it's complicated and uncomfortable. And even though it's the first time that this thing, uh, sort of thing has happened in my life, it's not the first time this thing, this sort of thing has happened in the world. I remember my grandmother telling me about living through the Second World War, about rationing at grocery stores that you didn't, couldn't go and show up and buy as much flour or sugar or ham or whatever you wanted. You had a ration book. You could buy the amount that was apportioned to you. We haven't dealt with that. I guess maybe with toilet paper, maybe that's happening. But by and large, you know, that there are, you, you can get pretty much anything that you want. Um, but still, it's just a global crisis that disrupts our lives. And there's about to be another disruption, one that's going to happen in just a couple of weeks. Everybody should be getting ready to go back to school, but not everybody will be going back to school. And if they do go back to school, it won't be the same as it was before. I know in Hudson they're having this what um, called this hybrid approach. So depending on your first letter of your last name, you'll go to, to class on Mondays and Wednesdays. And then every other Friday. And other students will go Tuesdays and Thursdays and the alternative every other Friday. So that the class sizes are reduced, cut in half. And then on the other days, there'll be this um, online kind of learning. Some schools have closed altogether. I think uh, Akron City Schools are going to a completely online program. And even those who are in school meeting you know, face-to-face on a regular basis, their lives are going to be disrupted. Things are not going to be the same. And I think about what all kinds of you know, ancillary catastrophes that go along with this. I mean, child care and how difficult that will be on so many families. And many parents are rightly worried about the quality of the education their children are going to receive. Is it going to be as good as it should be or has been? Which got me thinking about people who were undereducated. And one of them that crept to my mind is Abraham Lincoln. 
Do you know that Abraham Lincoln only attended a, a, a school program, like a, a formal education, for 18 months in his entire life? He only went to school in five years of his life. His sixth year, when he was six years old, when he was seven, when he was 11, when he was 13, and when he was 15. He didn't go to school when he was eight, nine, ten years old. Because there was not a teacher available, or there was too much work to be done on the farm, or those sorts of things. Even when Lincoln studied for the Illinois Bar Exam, it was not at the University of Illinois Law School. It was in the upper room over top of a general store where he was reading Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England by himself. This is how he prepared to take the bar exam. And so it is that I saw Lincoln's um, words about Henry Clay. He delivered the eulogy for the, the Kentucky statesman Henry Clay. And here's what Lincoln said about education. Mr. Clay's lack of an early education, similar to his own, teaches at least one profitable lesson. It teaches that in this country, one can scarcely be so poor that if he will, he can acquire sufficient education to get through the world respectably. People like Henry Clay and Abraham Lincoln had no opportunity for education and yet found a way to be educated. And I thought about how we worry about so many things about schooling, about quality teachers, about uh, quality textbooks, about um, technology and the ability to access all of that. And, um, and I realized that we don't really suffer from inadequate resources in this country. We suffer from inadequate will, <laughs> the will to be educated more often. It's apathy about education usually. One of the real ironies that we have is that we have the most educated or the most information-rich society that's also one of the least educated. Worse than that, um, we have strived for learning in knowledge. And we have given up on wisdom. Knowledge makes one proud. Wisdom is not, uh, wisdom is the application of knowledge. And we believe that if a person studies science and mathematics and literature and art, that they will become wise. See, the thing that Lincoln had going for him, and many so many others, was that their number one textbook, if they only had one textbook, was Holy Writ. They studied the Bible. They learned so much about the world and even the, the, the disciplines outside of religion from the Bible. They learned the ways of God. What made Lincoln so wise? His study in the scripture. Isaac Newton, William Wilberforce, George Washington. All the same. Thomas Aquinas. It's the study of scripture that made them wise. And so, yes, we need textbooks and teachers and all that good stuff. Thank God for universities and professors and, and all the people who, who teach us um, for the Internet, for Wikipedia. <laughs> How do we know anything about Wikipedia? <laughs> for, for all of these uh, wonderful resources. But we would be hopelessly lost if we settle only for knowledge. In Matthew's Gospel today, Jesus takes his friends on an excursion. They are going perhaps the furthest they're ever going to go to the north, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, to a town called Caesarea Philippi. Philip the Tetrarch built this city and named him after himself and after Augustus Caesar. 
Um, but it was more notable as a site of pagan worship to the Greek god Pan. This is supposed to be the birthplace of Pan in the area that later became Caesarea Philippi. And there's this massive limestone rock there. And out of this rock, there are these massive holes and a natural spring shoots out. And it looks like a face that is spewing water directly out. And this, again, is thought to be the birthplace of Pan. Pan is the god of desolate places. Um, He's the god of nature and the god who incites fear. The word panic comes from the, the Greek god Pan. And so people came by the hundreds and thousands to gather around this shrine and to throw sacrifices into the cave and there worship the god Pan. Before this was a, a Greco-Roman site, though, it was an ancient Near Eastern site for the worship of Baal, uh, the local deity for the, uh, many of the people who lived in the Palestine area. After uh, Philip builds the city, he makes a, worship, a site for the worship of, the, um, of Caesar, the emperor worship that's going on there. So you have all these things that are sort of commingling in this area. The worship of Pan and the worship, the ancient worship of Baal and the worship of, of the, the Roman um, emperor all happening in this area. Not a place that you would find devout Jews. This isn't a place for them to go. And yet Jesus takes them to this place. Now, I imagine you're in this setting and you see all of this going on. And Jesus turns to his friends and he asks them a question. What's the word on the street? Who do people say that I am? And you heard the answers, right? Some say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You know, you're, you have this sort of spirit of one of these, these ancient Hebrew preacher prophets. Notice that none of this would be said about him in Caesarea Philippi. This site of pagan worship. These people would say, eh, I don't know who he is. He's nobody to us. Not even honorable mention. But among the Jews, maybe, maybe somebody of importance. But who do you, Jesus says, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Okay, this is maybe what they're saying in other places, Capernaum and the like. What about you? What do you say? And you know this man, this fellow, Simon Peter. Simon Peter's a fisherman. His father was undoubtedly a fisherman. His brother is a fisherman. They're in the fishing business together and probably have been fishermen for generations. Most likely uneducated. Peter has two letters in the New Testament attributed to his name, and they both have signs of being written by different secretaries. So a a, a sign that he dictated uh, verbally this letter and that they were written down. Maybe it was that he could could read Hebrew, but he couldn't in in Greek. And so he hires a secretary to to write his letter. And, And he says to Jesus, this man, you're the Messiah. But he adds a little addendum to this. The son of the living God. Now, in, um, in ancient, you know, first century Hebraic thought, the, the, the view of a coming Messiah to deliver the people from Rome was a long-awaited hope. But nobody thought the Messiah was going to be divine. 
The Messiah would be somebody who was who had a special anointing by God, but not a divine being. And Peter, by saying the son of living God, is not saying that he's God's offspring. He's rather saying that God, he, he is the embodiment of the living God. He is, is taking on the flesh of the, as, as God has, has taken on the human flesh. So why does he say this? Why does he get this information? Where does this come from? It's not even from the study of scripture itself. Jesus gives him the answer, right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Congratulations, I think is how I would tra- uh, translate this. Congratulations, Simon. Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You didn't get this through your own clever imagination. You didn't get it from schooling. You didn't get it from other people. But God himself has revealed this through a special awareness it, God has done for Peter what only God could do. The shorthand word for this is grace. This infusion of grace, and he understands and sees who Jesus is. So what are you saying, Father Joe? You feel like uh, maybe give up on the whole education bit, you know? Put a real premium on ignorance? That's the way we ought to get? You know me better than that. No. No, 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 a thousand times no. We don't give up on education. I think Christians ought to be the most well-read, most broad-minded, tolerant, erudite people. I think that we ought to cherish intellectual advancement. But we ought to value wisdom above all else. That we ought to be wise people. Knowledge makes one proud. Wisdom makes one humble. You understand the limits of humanity. And in this world where everyone is an expert, and believe me, everyone is an expert. They're expert on everything. Politics, economy, sports, whatever. Arts, everybody's an expert. Why not rather focus on the wisdom that comes from God? Can I bring Isaiah into this conversation from earlier? In the, in the, listen to what Isaiah, Isaiah speaking for God. He's a God's mouthpiece. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Don't forget your tradition. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you were a people brought into being by the power of God. He calls Abraham and for us to be followers of God just like Abraham. And then all through verse 2, look to Abraham your father. Verse 4, give attention to me, God says. Verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens. Verse 7, listen to me. Look, listen, pay attention. Get the right focus. I don't have to tell you that we live in a world that is sometimes antagonistic to God. Antagonistic to religion. Adversarial. But I don't think that's our worst problem. I don't, in fact, I would bring on the adversarialness. Bring on the antagonism. At least they're still in the game. The greater part of our culture is that it's apathetic. That it just doesn't care. Apatheos, no passion. No desire. No interest. Jesus might be, 
an enemy to some. But more than that, the worst thing that he could be is viewed as just a good teacher. Sure, he was a nice chap. Too bad what happened to him. No! C.S. Lewis would not allow that, would he? He, he, he forced the issue. No, you cannot say that. Look at what he said. If he is what he, if he, if he's, is what he claims to be, if he's going to hold him to that standard, he is one of three things. He is either a lunatic. You know, he's deranged. Lewis says he's someone who would compare himself to a poached egg. You know, he's either a lunatic, he's a liar, he's made up things about himself that are not true, or he is who he said he is. He's the Lord. And he forces us to answer that question. Who am I? Who do you say that I am? In the old lectionary version, the lectionary was reshuffled. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. But it was reshuffled. And it used to be that we would get Romans chapter 12 in this section of reading. The beginning part of Romans 12. Let me read to you what St. Paul writes in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, sisters and brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. And then Paul goes on to say this. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Don't be conformed to this world. The word he says, don't buy into this world's schematic, its schemes. But be metamorphosed. Be transformed. And this is a really fascinating word in, in Paul's original because it's what's called the middle uh, use of the language. Uh, and so there's active, Joe throws a ball. There's passive, Joe got hit by a ball. That's more often what would probably happen. And, and there's a middle use. Joe hit himself with a ball. That <laughs> you, know? you, you kind of get in the way of, uh, of something or, or Joe get ran over in the middle of the street. You know, that, that you, it happens to you, but you sort of put yourself in a place where that happens. This is what Paul was saying. Be transformed. Let your mind be renewed. Not just you renewing it, but it being renewed. That God will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Indeed, this whole world that we're living in right now with its pandemic, its death and disease, it is heart-wrenching and devastating. And you can't watch too many news stories of people who are suffering without it just breaking your heart. Um, Every country on this planet has dealt with it and is dealing with it. But I think one of the things it has caused us to do that we probably never would have done on our own is to stop. Did we ever stop, right? We're just even barely now taking baby steps. Stop, and while you're stopped, reflect. Had no choice but to reflect. Had to value entertainments over public health. Curtail our own wants and desires because the well-being of our neighbors depended on it. Even refraining from showing signs of love and affection to one another because we didn't want to give somebody a, a life-threatening virus by hugging them. But in doing that, I think it made us realize, at least it made me realize, I can't speak for you, but it made me realize how important human contact is. How important it is to shake somebody's hand. How important it is to hug somebody. 
to be close to them. To realize that it's not so many, so much the things that we did, but the things that we did together. This is what's really important. This is what really mattered. So maybe it is that in this year of total disaster, that our education is going to take a hit. <laughs> We're not going to learn as much as we might have in other times. But maybe we get a little bit wiser. Maybe we apply knowledge in a way we had never done before. Maybe we come closer to answering this question, but who do you say that I am? Because that's really important. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.